It's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zanashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. Sup, y'all? And... Green, green. <laughs> I'll do it. There you go. <laughs> I'm here with Travis Comble and Michael Persine. Persine? Persine? Persine. Persine. I can't remember. So good. I remember it wasn't Persine. Play it back next time. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Yeah, well, you know, I'm old. I got mental problems. What a, you know, what are you, what are you going to do? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, I got medical problems, I'm supposed to say, not mental problems. Uh, are we going to get a Jay-Z's medical corner today? Uh, I don't know. You know, I had one not too long ago, and I was like, oh, yeah, that'll be good. And then uh, I forgot what it was I was going to say, and so we lost it. I have to wait for another medical issue to crop up before uh, before I can talk about, talk about those things. I'll be looking forward to your next medical yeah. problem, Jay-Z. I'll, <laughs> yes. I'll keep my ear out. I was thinking I could do uh, Jay-Z's Travel Corner ah. with travel advice. There you go. And then, like, where to stop for a tasty pint. Yeah, no, and people then, ask me that. I'm like, no, nah, no. Nah. I'm like, just Google it. Yeah. <laughs> just Google it. <laughs> I'm not your travel agent. But I could give some some solid travel advice. Who was I talking to? Somebody was, was like, man, you... You have all the details of how to travel. They were impressed. They were just like, I thought they knew to travel. And they were like, no, no, no. You've got the, I've got my techniques for, you know, hotels and finding hotels and getting it, you know, exactly the right hotel, the right price, right location, times, travel, modes of travel, varying your, your travel modes, you know, based on uh, time and money. Sounds like we got a spinoff. Travel <laughs> strong. Travel strong. Make strong other travel? travel guys sound like road trip guys. That's right. <laughs> I don't know. On the road with Jay-Z. There you go. Let me tell you about our fine sponsor, Blickman Engineering, and the fine gear. Like I always said, they are innovating your brew day through the brilliance of uh, one John Blickman and a lot of the other guys they have there and their their passion for for brewing and making great, great equipment. And they have a three and a half barrel tall boy fermenter that is only, it's narrow enough to fit through a 36 inch door. So it's it's slimmer and a little taller. It'll fit through a 36 inch door. All the valves and accessories are mounted on the, the front. It makes it easy to, uh, again, to, to use because you can tuck it in a corner. You can tuck it in a row of fermenters. You don't have to worry about attaching stuff to the back. And that means you can have more fermenters in a smaller space in your brewery. A lot of small breweries, when people are starting out on their their micro or nano brew breweries, they you know they want to be able to get as many fermenters in the smallest space as possible. Because one of the things about having a a, a tap room or a brewery is the more space you have, the better. But you know you're paying rent on that. If you're not brewing a whole lot of beer. You really need to be max, you know, minimizing your space and you know, maximizing your sales. And so 
fermenters like this, definitely a great way to go about it. So I know a lot of people doing three barrel, three barrel systems. And again, that three and a half barrel tall boy could be a, a great thing for a lot of people. So check it out. They got a lot of stuff on their website, BlickmanEngineering.com. They make everything from the basic, you know, anvil stuff to the high-end, uh, you know, commercial brewing stuff. So whatever your brewing needs, check them out and see what they got. And as always, send uh, our good friend, uh, John Blickman, an email at uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell them how much you appreciate that he pays for the show so you don't have to. And that's all you got to do. Check out their stuff and uh, send them a nice email. All right. Today. See the ratio of uh, homeowners to pros that have that three and a half barrel size now that he's put it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's probably a lot of homebrewers with three and a half barrel fermenters in their garage. Scaling it up now. Uh, you know, looking selling that. It's nice. Yeah. I, I was no. going to say it's pretty neat because you could make a space that doesn't have a garage door, a brewery. It's like you can get a little apartment or something <laughs> like mm-hmm. in a big city and and be brewing in it. Right. Yeah. Well, and a lot of times, even if you find an industrial space, you know, they won't have like a big roll up or something like that. Or if they, even if they do, sometimes, you know, you want to use the office space uh, to put your fermenters in because it was air conditioned. And so you got to get through the door or something like that. Being able to fit through, it's like, you know, you know, scissor lifts, you know, they're designed, you know, to go through a doorway, you know, so they're skinny. And they collapse down to where, you know, they pass through a, a, a standard door, which makes them so much more useful. And uh, especially in, in, you know, existing spaces. Yeah. If you're not purpose building something from the ground up, you know, pretty nice. So check them out. Today, we are still catching up on questions. So we're, we're if you're sending in new questions, we're catching them, you know, quick now. We're, we're on top of that. And I, I mix in, once, once we run out of those new questions, I'm mixing in all the older questions. So we will eventually get all the old questions done too. Don't worry if you sent in a question a long time ago. But if you got new questions, send them in. We're on top of it now. We're doing it. We're, we're there. We're yeah. here. That's the enthusiasm I need. Uh, let's see here. <laughs> Jeremy writes, gentlemen and the lovely Bevo, I have a question regarding kegging. I've moved into the realm of kegging, but still want to bottle some of my beer. I am buying the three-gallon kegs, but they are very expensive. So my question is, how can I go about adding three gallons of beer to a five-gallon keg? Should I transfer it over and do everything normal? Do I have to adjust the PSI carb levels, or is this something I just shouldn't do, like the time I got married? (laughs) The, the, The reason for doing this is because I can get three reconditioned five-gallon kegs for almost the price of one three-gallon keg. Thanks again for all the great info and shows. So I think what he's looking at is he's putting he's putting some in the bottling bucket, doing his bottling, and then he wants to put the rest in a keg. I would say, yes, you can do that. And if you wanted to do that, fine. Just pre-purge the keg with lots and lots and lots of CO2 to get the air out of there, and then you can transfer it. But the easier way would just to be to put all of purge the, the five gallon keg, put all of it in the five gallon keg, carbonate it, get it all clear, dry hop, whatever you're doing, get the beer ready. And once it's ready and drinking perfectly, then just get yourself a Blickman beer gun and fill some bottles off the keg. Absolutely. However many bottles you want. And then 
you can adjust your pH, your your uh, carbonation up or down. You can get everything perfect. And when it's drinking perfect, that's when you that's when you bottle off. That's what I did. So I agree. I that's, that's a good way to go. Do you guys do anything different than that? I guess for me, purging kegs, I've developed a process where I will fill up the keg with sanitizer all the way. It's overflowing. Mm -hmm. And then as I push that into another keg or into a bucket, mm -hmm. I'll, especially early on, I try to catch it in the first gallon of, of sanitizer coming off. I pull the vent 10 times and I've had really good results, especially with oxygen sensitive beers like hazies and, and IPAs. So that way yeah, I feel that, like I save a little CO2 because I don't, I'm not cycling so much mm -hmm. in and out. Freezing that is, that is a great way to go. And, uh, you know, pushing it out into another keg, then that keg's ready to be right. pushed out again the next time. So, it, you yeah. know, it'll sit there just fine, especially if you mix up your, your star sand with a, uh, or your sanitizer with, uh, you know, uh, RO water or something like that it doesn't have a lot yeah. of minerals in it. I don't think it's completely 100% devoid of, of DO because when you mix up the sanitizer, there's, there's going to be some, some oxygen in that, that liquid and that water. Um, mm -hmm. but still, you know, by, by pushing it out that way, I, I think that that, that's really ideal and easier, or like you're saying, using a far less CO2 than just flushing and purging. Cause you really don't know yeah. things fully emerged. One other you thing. I, you, oh yeah. Go ahead, Travis. You do a few pressure pops, you know, after you do put your beer in there. And again, if you're, if you're doing the five gallons in the keg, your pressure pop at a very small volume. You put three gallons in that keg, and there's a whole lot. If, again, if we follow Michael's uh, Michael's uh, tip there, which is very similar to what I do. You shouldn't have much air in there, but you're not really evacuating a lot if you try to pressure pump two gallons of space versus that small, tiny head space. You know, if, when, when you're talking about PPM of oxygen, so forth. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Yeah, the last thing I do is I'll actually throw the keg on a scale and. I have the tear weight written on the side and that's kind of the chemi in me is I'll actually weigh it out and then I know how many pints are in there, but I've had it where I only got 15 pints in a five gallon and uh, I haven't had any uh, oxidation issues or, <clears throat> but it's kind of nice to weigh it too. So if you were shooting for three gallons or whatever he's trying to do, maybe throw it on a scale, it's 8.34 pounds per gallon. Mm -hmm. So bing, bang, boom, you know how much you got. Right. Well, yeah, I would think that if he, uh, you know, wants to bottle some, he can just yeah. fill the whole thing up and then, and then just bottle off what he needs to bottle. I'm, I'm with you on that one. I think he'd be even, good. Even if, if, if he didn't, I mean, I think he'd be disappointed. I mean, six years ago, if, even if he just put off or whomever is brewing, puts all five gallons in the keg up front and, and do your bottling off the keg, at least you started off with, you know, a full keg that's been purged. If you don't wait to carve, if you don't wait for it to turn bright, if you're not going to do any dry hopping or any keg, et cetera, it's still, why bottle out of a bucket, which I'm assuming, when you can bottle out of a, you know, pressure containing keg, driving it with CO2, your bottling would be better off that way anyway. Now, you know, maybe you have a little bit of problems with spending so long priming sugar, you know, you don't need to put priming sugar in the keg, but all of these ways seem a whole lot better than forever ago when I used to bottle off of a bucket. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Right. I mean, you know, the, the having the live yeast in there is good, but I'd I'd prefer to to properly, you know, carbonate it and you know, then then you can also make sure it's nice and clear, everything else. You know. Absolutely. I got. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, more of your questions right after this.
What's up, homebrewers? Hey, let me ask you a question. You spend a lot of time making your beer taste the way you want it to, right? Some of you even send beers into Dr. Homebrew for feedback. Well, the next logical step in your creativity is to craft some labels for those beers. And there's nobody better at creative labels than Grog Tag. Their easy-to-use designs let you turn out some pretty amazing stuff like labels, bottle caps, coasters, even six-pack carriers with minimal effort on your part. They have a range of label sizes that fit any vessel you can think of. Bottles, cans, growlers, kegs. GrogTag has you covered. Head over to grogtag.com today and check out their line of amazing, fully customizable templates and get your beer looking its best. GrogTags are water-resistant, reusable, and will have your naked bottles looking great in no time. That's grogtag.com and be sure to use code BNARMY at checkout to save 10% on your order. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, answering your questions. If you have questions for us, just submit them to brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. You just send an email in there. You can say Q&A or show idea, something like that. Try and limit yourself to one question if you can. And uh, send that in, and we're actually getting into them pretty quick if you send them in. <laughs> if you're sending them in now, you know, we just got to such a terrible backlog in the past, uh, but we're getting the, the new ones in in quick, and they're very much appreciated. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Henrik, which uh, he has uh, sent in questions in the past. He's in uh, Sweden, and he has asked some really interesting questions in the past. So this, this question, he's asked about agar plates with uh, selective pressure, but not the selective pressure you're thinking. He says, hey, howdy, Cretans. Thanks for a super show. As a tinkerer, always looking for improvements, and you always give me ideas on how to improve my brain. And I've been plating exotic yeast from yeast packs in beers for quite some time. However, I always end up plating three to four agar plates as I know there will be contaminants growing on some of the plates, making them useless. One idea I have been contemplating is to make agar plates with selective pressure that favor yeast. In biotech, this is common practice for making genetically modified bacteria using antibiotics to make the plates favor only modified bacteria with resistance to the specific antibiotic. As a biotech engineer, I've poured thousands of plates under sterile conditions in a lab. However, doing the same thing at home in a makeshift sanitary environment, burner for updraft, low airflow environment, covered work area, etc., I still get infections on 25 to 50% of my plates, even before plating the yeast. Combined with the infection risk when plating, this means that I waste 80% of the plates I make. As a recipe for the selective plates, I was thinking this. DME wort at 6 Plato, lactic acid to pH of four, agar for consistency, alcohol, vodka to 5% ABV after boil, but before the agar. Uh, do you have experience using plates, growth media with selective pressure, plating of yeast? Do you think this would work? Plate it. Test later this year, but if there is a knowledge experience showing it, I've been my time building a HEPA filter draft bench instead. Cheers. Henrik in Sweden. So, fuck that. He would get made of infections on his plate. Because I poured plates at home without a hood. And 
I never, I never had that infection rate. I mean, I'd get like one out of one out of a hundred, one out of 50. I mean, pretty low percentage. So I don't know why he would get that, that amount, but no, I did, you know, I would turn on uh, burners on the gas. I would then, you know, spray afterwards. I would, you know, work quickly and, and under, under the, uh, under the lid, even when pouring plates, you know, but uh, that's uh, regardless, but as far as selective pressure goes, I, I don't know there's a select pressure that keep out all the bacteria and uh, wild yeasts and just favor brewing yeast. Did he mention pH? I mean, is that going to help? Well, I mean, he said I, lactic acid to a pH of four. I know that yeast too, it'll survive briefly and kill off some bacteria. I mean, that's the process of uh, yeast washing. And I think our star sand runs about 2.4-ish mix, and that's kind of why we're using it. But all that being said, this, this, this guy does this for a living, but can't run at home. I'm not sure if I'm the one to give him advice. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Uh, maybe throw some hops in there if you're trying to – I mean, hops have a natural antiseptic property right. on board. Try to... And then adding vodka to you know 5% ABV, 5% won't stop it or – I mean, it's maybe some bacteria, but you know, it's generally eight percent yeah, ABV when when it starts to become, and then it's somewhere close to twenty percent ABV when it truly will kill off things. But then I think because I had a question for uh, for one of my guys in in the area, uh, I'm just like, at what point does does you distilled products? no longer run the risk of, you know, contaminating infection. And uh, his initial guess was like 30%. Once the guy did his PhD in bacteria. And then he's like, no, it's more like 18, 20%. So I don't think 5% would be any good. I think, I don't think the drop the pH a little bit. I don't think that that is really going to do it either. I, if it were me, I would look at why I'm getting such a failure rate on my plates to start. And if it requires building a hood, build a hood. I mean, you can build, you know, take a plastic sheeting, buy for paint, you know, put it up, seal it off and just put, you know, the section front and then just spray everything down. I'm just get a, a sanitary area and just keep doing that. And uh, if you don't let stuff in, it'll it'll end clean. I was thinking, I was, I was that email I couldn't find it. Sorry, Jamel. Did he mention if he does any controls? I mean, oh, do we know mm. environmental or what he's dosing? Oh, you right. Know, no, that's an excellent point, Travis. Yeah. I knew there was a reason that you were on this show. A uh, <laughs> hundred points for that, for that, for that, Travis. Hundred points. Be- because I mean, what he's plating out may be contaminated. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. There you go. Yeah. But then 20 depends on what he's plating out or bad. You know, if he's, if he's getting it, if you, if you take like a white labs or, or a, a white yeast or, you know, imperial or one of the, you know, one of the, the, you know, maybe yeast, and you take their package and you, you know, you sanitize the outside and you 
get the thing open sanitary and you take a loop inside that, you shouldn't get any contamination whatsoever. So maybe he needs to do some of that, you know, kind of also just make sure. And then like you're saying, you know, set some place side. Cause that's, I mean, that's what I did. I didn't immediately, you know, uh, inoculate them with yeast who would be, I'd make a bunch of plates. I'd make, you know, 25 or 50 plates and I would, you know, it's for future use. I get all set up, everything's ready. And then it would be, you know, a few weeks or months before I used the plate. And, you know, if I saw anything growing on it, then I knew there was a problem. But, you know, like I said, I could do 25 or 50 plates and many issues. So I'd, I'd work on, on why that's coming up. I think that's because I don't think, you know, the broth that he is uh, suggesting would actually do anything there. I don't think that'd work. I mean, it may have impact, but it'll be minimal. Yeah, I would just say from a process engineering standpoint, maybe, you know, you got to assess your process and try to, I know, the, identify that there's a kitchen happening in the production. Then you could like say, well, okay, now I got to keep dissecting and try to isolate the different steps of your process and, and then really try to figure out where the contamination is happening. That's kind of, because you can take swings at it all day right. and never really go. It could it could be you know his source of materials that he's using right. that the plates aren't sterile. Could be that yeah. the, the agar is 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 uh, off somewhere. Right. I think uh, you know eventually make the plates sit for a while and see if you're really getting it there or if you're getting it through what your your plate. And that that's an answer question there. Yeah. Good job there. All right. So, uh, Travis from, uh, from Scott. Yeah, Scott posted in the chat on Facebook there. So I'm going to read it off. Mm-hmm. Have you noticed reduced hop utilization and reduced malt presence using a 120 volt system, 3 volt system? I brew on a 20 volt anvil foundry and have found that I need to flip several levers to hear that I envision increase how I'd be used by 25 inch print. Or an ESB or an IPA, add to the end of bark to oppose their yeast former. He, he's doing a few things that he's trying to increase his malt presence and his hop presence uh, in the question. German Bach yeast for an American lager. And he thanks everyone. Thank you. Through during the pandemic and us. Yeah, there really shouldn't be a difference between 20 and a 240 volt system utilization goes. It'll save you a bunch of time. But you should be able to get more than adequate activity or, you know, movement in a, in a 120 boil, a pedal and a tiny element <laughs> should be fine. I, I wonder what system he came from that he would isolate the voltage. Is he, has he always had an anvil, but a 240 before now he's at 120 or. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing, uh, Scott, you're probably just using the, the 120 when you started and that's your, it's oh, okay. Just the one system. the The thing would be if Scott's listening still, he can he can add to it. But I think you know the the thing is when you start brewing and you get these calculations and you get recipes. It depends on where your recipes are from. You know, if you're just seeing different recipes off the internet or out of magazines and things like that, they tend to vary from author to author. 
and, and their experience. And it, it may be that you're just thinking that, you know, the IBUs are low or another possibility is that, you know, perhaps you're not getting full attenuation. And if you're not getting full attenuation, it's going to seem like your bittering is much lower. That's um, a great one, Jamil. Yes, posted. Yes, 20 volts, almost four years. And uh, this, this, is, this is the mistake. Rescue room, classic styles. Oh, there's uh, your problem. <laughs> no. I had a yeah, question real quick. Is he at altitude? That's a good question. Up? Scale 30 seconds, but runs through, through Facebook. Yeah, he gives a, a shout back. Right. Anyone else who would like to listen live, comment um, 30 seconds and, late. And, ex- and explain, Michael, why, why altitude's a problem for this. Yeah, but at a higher altitude, your boiling temperature will actually drop. And I think it's every some feet, it's it's a couple degrees. So if you're at 4,000 feet like me, I'm at 4,400 feet. I have a, a boiling point of 204 instead of 212. And so actually that affects my model utilization by about 25, well, 20%. I, I have in my team that mm-hmm. I found. And so his boiling point is 209. There you go. So actually, when I get these recipes, I build calculator in Microsoft Excel, mm-hmm. and it calculates for boiling temperature, and so I can adjust. But right. and that'd be my only. I, yeah. I think what you're saying too about attenuation is is probably right. I would like the ninety ninety percentile probably. So that is you know when you're up past you know one eighty or so you know you get past one five. And, and you get up into, you know, 180s, 190s, uh, there's enough heat for isomerization. And it's really more about the stirring of the, of the wort, where, you know, you, you see the stuff, the bubbles rise. And what it's doing is bringing liquid up with it and cascading back down through the pot. And it's this, this cycling of the liquid throughout the, throughout the kettle. And that combined with the heat is what is isomerizing the alpha acids and giving you the best. And but, I can add for Scott, since he's uh, listening in, I use the same unit on 240, I'm my percent down. So my boil is exactly his boil in theory. I use mm-hmm. 60% of 240, which is post rate he's using. I don't think I've seen a drop. I mean, I've, I've, I've made so many changes for the years in, in my brew day, but I wouldn't say that I have to use 25% more of IBUs or anything like that now than they did before. It's possible years of his brewing, He's cleaned up some things here and there and got a book model of recipes and how products come out. Are you getting uh, the the complete attenuation uh, in the, that are shown in the recipe, Scott? That'd be another question. Because that's a possibility. Yeah. The other the other thing that can do it is, you know, post post-ferment handling where you get oxidation uh, or you get, you know, of some kind. And staling will kind of up the sweetness in a beer. And uh, oxygen can impact some of the hop compounds. So that, that could be a possibility too. Another possibility is you're getting, you know, the hops you're getting maybe are not, you know, all they're cracked up to be for some reason. Or if you're storing your hops warm, that can, can really impact the hops versus uh, storing them cold in the freezer. I'm trying to think of all the other possibilities. Is he, is he getting the alpha acid from each bag of hops? To you, you know, right. sometimes the calculators have a typical value, right? And that's off from what they actually. So I don't, are. I don't. All the calculators, you just have to pick, go with it, and stick with it. And then, you know, if you know that 
it's giving you, Absolutely. you know, 25% less than you really want in bitter. Well, then, you know, up everything by 25%, or if it's too high, you know, reduce it. You know, could, I can certainly attest that an IBU is not an IBU. I mean, I, right. I switched back to CTZ almost exclusively for my bittering of years I want to be bitter because I get the bitterness from CTZ. And I'm already calculating well 100 IBUs on my double IEs, and it still makes a difference if I use CTZ versus in a smash. You know, if I use that hop, mm -hmm. I often don't get the bitterness even close to it. I'm reading all the notes from Scott, and it sounds like he's really watched his process and has right. learned a lot. Doing, doing back to what you were I mean, if it's affordable to make it the modification that he needs to make, then I would just roll with it. Right. I mean, 25% is... I read an, read an article in G. It was a uh, myth about brewing, or whatever, and it had a really good, it had all the uh, references and everything. It was basically a good rule of thumb is every degree Celsius, you lose 50% isomerization from boiling at sea level. And so at 90C, you're at 50%, at 80C, you're at 25%. And on. so I actually built that into my little. Yeah, um, model. that's. That's a considerable temperature difference or not out of chain. <laughs> Did well, you I mean, say, 10, de you 10 said, degrees you C or you say like 220 20 degrees Fahrenheit. That's, that's, yeah. you know, you're at 192. I mean, my model kind of has a, a fit, so it, it doesn't do the whole, it doesn't do right. stepwise. It's kind of like at, right. one, at 204, sure. you're getting 70% of your isomerization or whatever. I think it's 75 or something. But, like if, that. but if it's, but if it's, if it's 10%, did you say for 10, 10 degrees C? I can actually, here, let me see what I got. If it's 10% for 10 degrees C. Um, it's 50, 50%. 50%. That sounds outrageous. 10 degrees C. I'm not saying it's not true. It sounds outrageous. Right. Also, Michael, if you tell us you and Blake, I think we're smart enough to understand what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, it, it may not be linear, but it may be linear. Uh, that's a lot. But that's, that's substantial. I never would have thought. Okay. All right. right. I mean, well, you're 60, somewhere around 160, supposedly, you know, I'm rising. But he's he's off like one degree C. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that's like a 25 preference. You know, because yeah, it's, it wouldn't be. It's not like a lot, right? And I think for most people, pretty minimal because nobody's boiling at one ninety two, or not very many people are boiling too. Let's put it that I, way. I know how to fix this. We, we convinced uh, John to host a competition for all Anvil Foundry owners to have you fly out and brew with them, mm. and share Scott's names in there a couple hundred times. There you go. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's it's super hard without tasting the beer to yeah. know what the answer is. So, hopefully, at some point, we'll go visit uh, Scott. He's in he's Central Indiana. Indiana. He's he's actually pretty close to where. Yeah. All right, just go visit Blickman and 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 have him taste the beer and say, "Hey, what's going on? chart." I look at it. I don't know. Oh, if so you it doesn't look it. like it's. Yeah, it's almost well, exponential I mean, or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, but it's it seems to follow a curve ah, where you've got 80, 90, and 100 degrees C. And it's roughly, and then even in the text, they talk about a good rule of thumb which made the drop through the temperature with the notion of isomeration halves every 10 degrees C. And this is out of Zemergy, May, June, 2022. I don't look for the reference. I'm not crazy. <laughs> All right. Anyway. 
Well, I think I think we beat that one to death. Yeah. <laughs> Let's take another quick break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're doing uh, live Q&A. If you're listening live in the chat, like uh, Scott is. Yes. He said he was recently using hot bags, but recently banned. Yeah, hot bags will, that'll get you about 10% reduction using hot bags. Precise. So... Or at least that, that was the rule of thumb back if anybody's really truly measured it. Yeah, hop bags, y- you need to up your, your hops with that. Okay. Yeah, another one here. Couple of questions use of zinc. Apparently, you talk about zinc on the show, and then people ask how much. Got two questions. Thomas from uh, Minnesota. He's saying, Jay-Z, I've heard you in the past mention the use of zinc as much uh, as a much needed nutrient, but only new quantities. And doing some reading on zinc and brewing, I've learned that the use of copper in brewing, i.e. copper chillers, does lead to some leaching of zinc into the wort. Uh, I have a half barrel system. I use homemade copper counterflow chiller to cool whirlpool temps and stop the water flow and run through to continue to the whirlpool with water back on knockout into the fermenter. So that said... Sir Jay Palmer, and I, am I getting enough zinc in copper, or would I benefit me some zinc monohydrate to six hundredths of a gram, sixteen gallons? My scale is more than coke. Thank uh, you. are answering my question soon. Let's see the uh, so copper also number of minerals metals can act as zinc does, but I you don't get enough just from using a copper coil. It's one of the weird benefits of using copper, because I guess copper was easy to work back in the day, improved uh, fermentation, you know, through uh, having that much copper there. I, I don't think it was enough. So the second question from John in, let's see, just not even a week ago. Oh, no. Sent this like a year ago. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. I've been hearing Jim Zinc, especially when repitching yeast. I've tried to research just how much to add to an 11-gallon batch, and the answers I can find are frustratingly incomplete and or imprecise. I'm a high school chemistry teacher, so when I say, so when they say add 50 milligrams of zinc, I need to know whether they're talking about the mass of just the zinc or a specific compound of zinc. Obviously, there is a world of difference between 50 milligrams of zinc uh, heptahydrate versus 50 milligrams of zinc uh, ions. My views are lower gravity, English style ales, ordinary bitter, Scottish light, etc. I know the dosing requirement is gravity dependent, but I'm quite prepared to do the calculations needed if I just knew what we're talking about adding. Up to now, I, I've just been throwing a nutritional supplement tablet with 30 milligrams of zinc into the boil, assuming that something is better than nothing and that the rest of the ingredients in the tablet are harmless. Well, the, the ingredients in the tablet are harmless, most likely, but something is not necessarily better than nothing if something is too much zinc because the zinc will be toxic. Like most metals, a high enough concentration 
is going to uh, be an issue for the zinc and kill kill the or the yeast and and harm the yeast. But now I see that zinc will be bound in the tube in the kettle and be added to the yeast slurry itself right at pitching. And not necessarily. A one-pound bag of zinc sulfate monohydrate very inexpensively. If you're willing to the cattle feed variety, <laughs> it's pretty cheap. The human feed variety is a little more expensive. Well, I imagine they're the same thing. The bag will probably last longer than I do. Strong, John. Yeah, so... The the reason, you know, people talk about it to the fermenter is because when you add zinc to the kettle, it binds with the tube and takes about 50%. It binds up with the tube, and so it's not in the work carried forward. For me, it's such a tiny amount of zinc. At Heretic, we owe it to the kettle, and the reason being... The powders that uh, the powdered zinc is probably got bacteria or wild yeast in it. You know, it's it's everywhere. So you know, if you just take that powdered zinc and throw it in the fermenter, and that's not a good good way to go. But you could add it to water, get get sterile, you know, a sterile dose that way, and that would certainly work. And that might be more precise. But I've always gone with you know, a certain amount, I think I targeted something, uh, oh, I'm looking notes here. I can't remember what I always uh, targeted for zinc. I can, I can tell you what you recommended to me. Target of work concentration of, you know, 0.2 to 0.6 milligrams per liter parts per million. I always went with about five parts per million as, as my, my number that I always recommended of zinc added to the, uh, so if you're using heptahydrate, that's going to be different. Heptahydrate often is easier to find than monohydrate, but monohydrate has like six less water molecules. So you use less of it. So that being said, Travis here created a calculator and also calculated what you need. He's a very simple way of you knowing how much zinc to add to your volume of wort. Take it, Travis. It's it's almost too simple. Um, so if you have hydrate and you take one of zinc and you zinc have to hydrate and you put it in one liter, you need 8.32 milliliters per gallon of words. So if you're adding that to your you know brew cattle, it's that much, 8.32. And if you have monohydrate, and do the same thing. One gram into one liter, you need 5.19 milliliters per gallon of wort. So heptahydrate, you need about eight per gallon. Monohydrate, five mils per gallon. If you use one gram, one liter of water. Easy. Simple. Great job, Travis. Yeah. Direction. <laughs> Another 100 points for Travis. <laughs> Michael, you're falling behind on this episode, man. Hey, he destroyed yeah. the last two episodes. It's all good. Uh, you know, I'm in a funk. I don't know. <laughs> well, there will Point be twice. a bonus round. Where, Double jeopardy. Where questions are worth twice as much. Let's see here. A previous show, dude named Text, his actual name, Doc Collum. And he does have a P. Dr. Texas, he is... Owner and brewmaster of Rugen, Rugen uh, 
Marshall, how far is Marxist from you, Travis? All right, good point. Somebody's look it up. <laughs> Here's your chance to steal, Michael. Steal. <laughs> Circle gets you square. Um, making all the games. <laughs> so he's the one who asked uh, Joe, uh, you know, advice on you know uh, starting a brewery. With, let's see here. This question is: Enjoy live show today. I've listened for years, but it's the first time I was able to tune in live. The question on the show was a very broad question about the best advice for a new startup brewery. I've been homebrewing for eleven years, and like many, dreamt of opening a brewery, but had no idea where to start. I have both undergraduate and graduate degrees in business and a PhD in higher education. In so I figured I could research and figure it out. Let me tell you, business school does not prepare you to open a business from scratch. Absolutely correct. <laughs> uh, this is someone who has taught business in college. What an eye opens. I don't care anyone my parent once we get our legs underneath us is to help others fill in the gaps in information, and overcome the hurdles, even know I would face. Local craft beer is relatively new to the East Texas area where we are opening our business Opening our bottle includes creating a brewery experience with our location to ease winning over what is typically a very change adverse population. This is strongly Bud Miller Coors territory. Uh, We're in the middle of a big building remodel and hope to begin brewing soon. Our goal is to open by May or June. You can learn more about the remodel on our Facebook page. I, I took a look at that and uh, it's actually uh, you know pretty impressive building. Look, it's, the place is looking pretty beautiful. Any advice is welcome and appreciated. I've been listening to Bruce Strong for the last five or so years. Mel and John have been a huge influence. So I was thinking about this, you know, like all the questions, you know, half-assed any of my answers. And the 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 thing is this, and and this is true in probably any business, and it's I think it's forgotten, is that you need to take care of your customers. You need to focus on your customers. You need to like your customers. I was listening to episodes of like a, a brewery failure podcast or closed in part because I wanted to answer this question, right? I know what I would do, but what have other people done? And the thing I took away from that was there were a lot of instances of people saying, you know, stupid ass customers and, you know, the you know, these, these idiots, these days, you know, it came really pompous and, and yeah, that's been true for a long time. But if that's what you're thinking of, you know, a lot of the customers, you're going to fail. You have to, you know, at Heretic, I loved our customers that the, the people that came to our tap room, they were wonderful. Yeah. Wasn't that? Sure. You know, just, that's just the nature of anything, but you know, you need to listen to your customers and what they want. If they're saying they don't and the new craft beer, well, you know, give them something to approach them or explain to them. Take the time to have a conversation with them about what you're doing and why you're doing it. The more you can communicate your story to the customer, the off you're going to do. Selling beer is a, before anything else, it is story. It is, it is, you know, catering to what the customer wants. It's explaining, it's uh, social media, it's things like that. And if you can tell people why you're passionate, one of the things we did at Heretic was I wanted 
cask beer. And so we would brew cask beer, but that came in or very few people that came in had ever seen a beer or had cask beer. And they didn't know why it was warmer than beer that they're used to and less carbonated. But, you know, we looked at that as an opportunity to have a conversation with them. I wrote up a, you know, a document and we put that people could read it and people started enjoying it. And they're like, yeah, you know, I understand why it is that way. I understand, you know, the, 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 the value add of, of getting actual, you know, true cask beer. And pretty soon we were just blowing through, you know, casks left and right. And it was because we involved the customer and we, the customer, and we, we treated them like adults and, and being angry with them about, you know, their lack of knowledge about craft beer, we engaged them. And it sounds like that's what Texas is doing. He is, he wants to have a, you know, a brewery experience. And that's a chance again to, you know, engage people in you know, understanding what it is you're doing. So I think that that's critical. And what else? Well, yeah. You opened a brewery in a Budweiser brewery. Yes. You didn't let that stop you, right? <laughs> From one, you miss great styles of beer, from the lightest to the darkest, to the biggest, the smallest, you know, sour to, you know, big Belgian non-sour, et cetera. I, I know what people in Houston like, and they like the whole ice house concept, but I don't know that anyone wants to spend that much money up front. I, I feel like Texas could, I know Marshall's at, Marshall is just inside of Texas from uh, Shreveport, a town many people don't know of. But Shreveport, I know because I'm from Louisiana. I, I might be surprised, again, if he likes the people that come in, and if he doesn't, find a new job. Yeah, and I, I'd, be, I'd be shocked to, to say that the people there have not heard of craft beer, tried craft beer. I mean, maybe they don't drink a lot because maybe there's no access to it or there's limited access. So make, make good, mm-hmm. put it on tap yeah. and, and offer them something that they won't get from Bud Miller or Coors. You might have a bar sells it, but you don't get to meet the brewer. But you know, uh, 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 the other thing is make it an experience that you would want to go to, or, you know, the average person wants to go in your community there, wherever you're setting up where, you know, it's nice environment. It's, you know, comfortable, the service really good, the people friendly. That's what, what gets customers to keep coming back. If you can provide food, provide food. That really helps. Food and great customer service. And I'm telling you, you people just keep coming back because of that. And then add quality beer in underneath all that. That'll keep them coming in. But I've seen people go to places with horrible beer just because the customer service was great. And it was just such a wonderful place. I've sat and drank at places where the beer's not that good, but it was just a lovely experience. So there you go. And I guess I'll, I don't have a, too much experience here, but I, I guess I can just off the top of my head, actually being born in Texas and, and this is several times, it, it seems like there's one thing they're more proud of than being American is being Texan. And that's one thing none of these big brands have, say, and mm-hmm. maybe look at that angle. And uh, I would say too, like, you know, Hot weather beers, beers that are really easy to drink in the summer. I mean, kind of your climate can dictate. And then kind of like 
from I would say the the pe- person who isn't a craft brew geek like us, a lot of these beers, especially like you were saying, cast they're they're Pandora's box. They have no idea what they're going to taste like. Oh, and I think for me, even as somebody walks in, I want to get a beer that I can reasonably expect the flavor profile, and that's where you got to. I was the better edu like you know kind of putting it out there like give the flavors give the 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 tell them that they get free taste put it on the wall like free tasting if you want to try this it's it's totally no pressure you know you don't have to buy one make it not. make it so your customers know that you care about them right and that you're not there to just take their money you're there to you know share an experience with them it makes, Definitely. makes a big difference the other thing I'd throw in there is I didn't name my brewery Zena Chef Brewing Company. You know why? Because pretty much nobody could pronounce that. So, I mean, I might change the name of your brewery. I don't know. Call it Dr. Texas. I don't know. That might be. Yeah. Funny. And then like a Dr. Mario thing going on, but it's Dr. Texas. <laughs> All right. And we'll be back with one more question right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. Uh, Billy had a question about clarity for him. He says, uh, I'm about to start real repitch going brew with white yeast, London 3 yeast, and which uh, three times do you guys at Brew Strong? Third and final target of brew will be an English barley wine. I've got a two-year-old version I love, but it's almost gone. I'm adding Clarity Firm to the first pitch, which is split ten ga- uh, split ten gallon batch porter five five, so my girlfriend and mom can enjoy. Uh, are there any reasons not to Clarity Firm to my third generation brew of the barley wine that I will be drinking for four? T- yeah, no, no reason not to. Um, you absolutely can do that. The the especially in a barley wine, uh, if the alcohol level gets high enough, I'm not sure what alcohol level it takes to denature clarity. But uh, I imagine if you're, you know, eight, nine, ten percent, it'll probably denature the enzyme. So I really wouldn't worry about it. I think it'd be fine. You guys have anything, anything different? Uh, in my readings about Clarity Firm or Brewer, Brewers Clarex, it's it's a it's an injured. Or if it didn't denature, I mean, I guess if you're shooting for a, a chill haze or gluten, you'd be concerned about. But and then I, I think from White Labs, yeah, these enzymes have a, a half life and don't exist much past their purpose. You know, if you right. were to consume it, I don't think it's personally. I wouldn't be worried about it because I know my stomach has plenty of acid in it and. By the time the beer reaches your stomach, it will denature any enzymes that are in there as well. And I don't think it would harm anything for storage. I don't think it would cause any problems whatsoever. So I'd I'd go for it. Yeah, the the beers I brewed with Clarity Firm have all come out awesome. Actually, my stomach always feels better. I think that's the gluten thing. And then also um, the Clarity has been really nice and to not have to worry about Oxidizing a beer, trying to find it. I mean, it's right. it's a nice. Is that why you use it, Mike? For, for uh... so the first one I did, I had a friend who was gluten sensitive, so I tried it. But this actually in the fermenter right now, I have a cold IPA that I'm using Clarity Firm. So 
I'm trying to avoid finding it. I have Biofine Clear, but I just I just want to try to see if I can get this to clear up without it. But yeah, and then so I got really into the whole science of it, and sounds like it's pretty well engineered. And I always think the guys at White Lab know what they're doing. Like they wouldn't put it out there, say something that it wouldn't do or do. <laughs> yeah, right. and, and it's bigger than just White Labs. Yeah, it's right. the, the White Labs is a kind of a repackaging of Brewers Clarex. Yeah. yeah, into homebrew size. Yep, packaging. All right, there you go. Another another fine show. Travis was the winner of this show. You get some some uh, furniture from Broyhill. Gonna be shipped direct to you. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, it's gonna come flat pack. You're gonna have to assemble it though. So there you go. If you're listening live, stay tuned. We're going to do another show right here in a little bit. I don't know if these guys need to pee, but uh, that would be the delay in, in starting. And uh, other than that, make sure to check out our fine sponsor, uh, Blickman Engineering. Check them out and uh, send an email to uh, John Blickman. You can send it at feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell them how much you appreciate he pays for the show. And uh, you don't have to. And check out while you're there check out all their their fine stuff good folks all right until then everybody Bruce strong Bruce strong Bruce strong <laughs> <laughs>